Brighton, it's so good to be back and it's 2021. How very, very exciting. I'm so looking forward to sharing this episode with you all. As some of you may know, Billy Elliot's Adventure Club is all about bringing new things into our lives and seeking adventure every day. And finding adventure and fun couldn't be more relevant and needed right now. Lots of people seem to be saying that they are craving newness and adventure at the moment, yearning for a new chapter, to travel, to move away. I just think people are bored and feeling stuck in tier four. But have no fear, Billy Elliot's Adventure Club is here and I've got a real treat for you all, an episode that will hopefully open some doors to a more possible place where new things can be explored in your life and more fun can be had through this grisly time. Today we have special guests, portrait artist Morag Kaster and adventurer Frankie Dewar on the show. So, Brightonians and beyond, sit back and enjoy. I hope you find some comfort and inspiration over the next hour on Billy Elliot's Adventure Club. Now, when I was thinking about making this episode with the current lockdown suddenly announced, I made some last-minute changes and decided to broadcast some inspiring interviews with people who are trying new things that we can do from home. And what could be more adventurous than altering your subconscious awareness and using the art of lucid dreaming to explore your inner realm? So I interviewed Alfie Dwyer to find out how to harness the powers of lucid dreaming for our own well-being. Lucid dreaming is essentially the phenomenon in which your inner dream and you're conscious of the fact that you're in a dream. A lot of people naturally assume that lucid dreaming means you're in total control. Um, but really lucidity is just the, uh, the sensation of awareness within a dream and realizing the fact that you're in a dream. Control does come a little bit later. It's slightly later on down in the process. Once you build up that general level of awareness, that's when you can start kind of controlling things, manipulating your environment, flying, et cetera, all the fun stuff. Mm, so interesting. And it sounds like there's just a whole world out there and all kinds of people and a community really about all getting in, into lucid dreaming. Totally, totally. It's like when you get a dog and all the, like everyone, once you get a dog, you're in dog world and everyone talks about their dogs <laughs> to each other and sends pictures. And it's like a whole different life, isn't it? <laughs> I bet because you have such an amazing experience of it, you would like really keen to get more people involved. Totally. I, there's so many benefits of lucid dreaming um, that it would be hard to even list in this podcast mm. um, from kind of personal spiritual people say physical healing can be done through lucid dreaming. I'm not entirely sure about that, but potentially therapeutic uh, the pure adventure of it. Um, there's so, so much that can be done that I, I, mean, I almost think it should be taught in schools. I know some schools are adopting meditation practice, but who knows, maybe in 20, 30 years, they'll be teaching kids a little one hour a week on lucid dreaming. Mm. That'd be my dream. Amazing. Maybe you'll be the one to lead the way with that one. <laughs> Quite possibly. That'd be nice. <laughs> um, so what is it about you then, Alvi, that is drawn to lucid dreaming? Um, I, perhaps it's just a desire to explore what's out there and uh, I, I think a lot of people 
take um, kind of everyday life and reality for granted um, as being the only thing there is. Um, and perhaps it is, but I think me and I know a lot of other people have this little twang at the back of their mind that perhaps there is something else out there. Um, and that is the kind of primal urge to explore that is what really draws me into it. Um, so, so one of the most incredible things you can do with lucid dreams, of which there are many, is overcoming a nightmare. Um, so, so for example, say you have, um, I don't know, like a recurring nightmare of this, you know, man that's coming to take you away, etc. Um, if you train up your uh, lucid dream ability to the point where you can, you're kind of regular, somewhat lucidly, often you'll you'll become lucid because of um, heightened emotion within a dream. Uh, and then because you trained yourself that heightened emotion means um, lucidity, which I can explain a bit more in the future, um, you'll become lucid. The, and then you can realize that you can, rather than running away from this nightmare in this moment, you can deal with it. Um, like you, could, you could be lucid and just what, it'd be like, okay, screw this, I'm going to wake up. But then essentially you've just done exactly the same thing as a normal nightmare feels like. You've still got that kind of subconscious knot or whatever that is. Um, but if you're if you're yeah. lucid, that you're then given the direct opportunity to communicate with your subconscious in a way that you really can't otherwise. So you can go up to this nightmare, which is this kind of representative of this you know subconscious knot or issue or whatever or tension or whatever's going on, and just look it in the face and give it love and give it respect and give it a hug and say you've got time for it, um, which is which is really wow. really bizarre. Um, I remember the first time it happened to me was about four years ago. Um, and I had this kind of alien demon thing chasing me in a dream. And it's absolutely terrifying. I suddenly realized it was a dream. Um, and for the first time, I was like, I'm just going to walk up to this horrible, terrifying thing. Still a little bit scary. Give it a massive hug. Um, and as soon as I started giving it a hug and started giving it time, it just kind of dissolved into this kind of gold and melted. Uh, and I woke up in this feeling of total bliss. It was the first time I'd ever woken up from a nightmare feeling incredible rather than that kind of sweaty panic. Um, and, you know, you flip and turn the light on and kind of sit there for a minute. Um, it was just this feeling of um, completion. Yeah, it's really, really nice. Incredible. And I'm so excited to hear more about that. Have you ever sat up in bed, like in the film, <laughs> with sweat on your head and like been like, <laughs> you're like is that a real? Is that um, I don't know. I don't know if I've done it with sweat. Um, but I've definitely sat, I definitely like jilted up, right? Yeah. Um, really? Yeah, exactly. Like the films are just kind of funny. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's amazing. I love what you just said then. I'm I'm so I'm so excited to to try. I'm gonna I really wanna learn how to do that because it would be so good to be able to face that fear head on and really like I guess take control. It's mm -hmm. all about exactly. taking control, right? Um so 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 lucid yeah. dreaming. Um I think a lot of people confuse lucid dreaming with controlling the dreams. Um lucid dreaming doesn't necessarily mean controlling the dreams. Lucid dreaming essentially just means you're in a dream and then you realize the fact you're dreaming. Um, and it's a spectrum. It, it's not necessarily an on-off switch, if that makes sense. You don't have like non-lucid dreams and totally lucid dreams. You, you, you might have, have non-lucid dreams, but you might also yeah. have slightly lucid dreams where you're kind of aware of the fact you're dreaming, but you're not quite sure. And then you might have very lucid dreams in which you're, you know, you're in your dream and you're totally aware of the fact that everything around you is a creation of your own subconscious and that um, you're actually asleep in bed in your location, wherever you are, etc. And this is all created inside your own head. Um, so it's a massive spectrum. Um, and you and each in each lucid yeah. dream you kind of quaver between them so like you might you might start off a lucid dream being not very lucid you might run around telling the dream characters oh by the way guys we're dreaming we're dreaming we're dreaming um and then later on in the dream you suddenly realize 
oh no i'm dreaming they're just characters within my dream yeah but it's, a, it's an incredible phenomenon um have you ever experienced it i i feel like i'm definitely aware at points i wouldn't say that i'm aware the whole time um or that the awareness goes to the point where i like talk about it but there are definitely points where i'm like mm-hmm. okay that i don't think this is real um but I really like what you said about that, 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 that the lucid dreams aren't um, a controlling thing. That, uh, like, it's not about exactly. controlling it, it's about being aware yeah. of it. Can, can, I think a lot of people exactly. think, oh, I haven't had a lucid dream because I haven't you know, shot fireballs out of my hands flying through the sky, destroying cities, etc. I mean, you can do that if you, if you want to practice. But, but yeah, lucidity is essentially just awareness. Um, can, control is... Control is a really exciting factor to it when you can start to control and manipulate your subconscious um to you know creating environments and flying etc um but but lucidity is just the awareness side of it how would you kind of facilitate or help somebody else who wants to for example face their nightmares like you were expecting sure um i think i think the first thing to do um in terms of facing your uh, facing your nightmares with lucid dreams, um, first you really have to learn how to lucid dream. There are, there are many ways mm-hmm. to do that, um, but basically just building up that practice and becoming more and more aware of your dreams um, is going to help enable those kind of practices. So there are many different methods of lucid dreaming. Um, there is the, the and they've all got silly names: the mild, the wild, which is a wake-induced lucid dream. The filed, which is the finger-induced lucid dream, um, which sounds kind of stupid. Um, there's, there's all kind of different practices. That, but the most common one, and the way I learned, and the way most people learn nowadays, is the mild. Um, and that is adopting a new set of behaviors that help you question reality on a daily basis. It all sounds a little bit confusing to start with, but I'll kind of break it down. Basically, the idea is that how often when you're walking around in your day-to-day life do you question that you're dreaming? Probably not a lot. And so the thoughts and feelings uh, you have while you're awake directly influence the thoughts and feelings you have when you're asleep. Um, so, for example, if you're kind of like a bit anxious in the daytime, you might have slightly anxious dreams as well. Or if you're, I don't know, skiing in the daytime, you might be skiing in the nighttime, etc., etc. Um, so basically, you have to basically adopt this little set of practices, which I'll describe in a sec, um, which help you question reality. Um, at, while you're awake as much as you can um, so that yeah. then when you're in a dream because it's your habit in your daytime it will also become habit in your sleep time as well so you'll be in a dream and then you'll do one of these questions you'll suddenly question am i dreaming and you go oh god i'm in a dream and then you can you know begin your first lucid adventure oh, okay so you're basically like adopting habits that you transfer into your subconscious realm exactly yeah um and so what what these practices are are known as the reality checks so they're, they're just little they're just little kind of daily rituals um so the the, the the most common one and the one I'd recommend the most. And I recommend you, um, when I go through these reality checks, maybe Billy, you and the listeners, um, you try these out in your environment around you. Um, so first off is count your fingers. So if you just look at your left palm yeah, and just, and just count your fingers and thumb and just go one, two, three, four, yeah. five, five, four, three, two, one. And yeah. you've got the correct number of fingers. Yeah, I'd recommend doing this many, many, many times throughout the day, um, and you're then you're really likely to do it in your dream as well. And 
it sounds bonkers, but most likely in dreams, you won't have five fingers. Um, you, you won't really, like when you're in a dream, you don't tend to be paying too much attention to the environment, but the environment is very fluid and dynamic. Um, and, little, and little details like the amount yeah. of fingers you have, your brain just kind of tends to skip over. So often in a dream, the first time you look at your hand, you'll have 10 fingers on one hand, or you'll have kind of a, a bizarre wonky finger sticking out of your palm, um, or just, just totally the wrong number. And yeah, this this one works with so much success. It's really, really weird. That was a part of a fascinating interview with Alfie Dwyer. The full interview can be found online by searching for How to Lucid Dream with Alfie Dwyer. Now, during the pandemic, have you picked up a pencil? Have you fancied yourself a little bit of a creative? I think a lot of people have found that with lots of time on their hands, they've been getting really imaginative and making their own work and putting pen to paper a lot more often than they would have done before. I had a really brilliant afternoon talking to Morag, an old school friend of mine, who has recently been on Portrait Artist of the Year and got very far, might I add. No spoilers for anyone who hasn't seen it yet, but I would really recommend you watch the programme. It's incredibly inspiring. And I just love watching Morag, somebody that I've known for a long, long time, give it her all as well. It's quite an interesting one, this programme, because it really is displaying and broadcasting the artist's process, which is often I think with art quite a solitary experience so I like talking to Morag about what it felt like to be an introverted artist that was working against the clock and in the public eye here's Morag so Morag maybe we should tell the listeners how we know each other would you like to start that story yeah sure okay we met at school in year eight so we were what like 12 13 so yeah we're really young and when i picture you i picture you like looking how you look now then do you know what i mean like i always can't remember (laughs) us looking like young like that so yeah (laughs) i'm kind of picturing us i'm kind of picturing us like sitting next to each other in science like as we are now I'm glad that you remember it that way around, that you don't remember it, that you think of me now and you you remember me then, when I was young, when I was 13. But I, I understand, like, why... Because I think everyone would feel like that, but, like, you were lush at school. Like, I don't know, like, you were lovely and nice, you know? Aww. Like, I remember... I, yeah, like, I remember you in, like, a really nice way. Aww. <laughs> I think because I thought you were, like, quite nice and cool, like, and I remember you asking me, like, do I go to any clubs? And I thought you meant, like... N- I thought you meant like nightclubs and I was like oh my god like this girl goes to nightclubs I was so far from going to nightclubs <laughs> yeah I was hardly even eating sugar no I meant like after school clubs probably didn't I you did mean that yeah and I, then I was just like yeah I was like no I don't do anything <laughs> <laughs> wait so more eggs on the show because she's had a very exciting um career so far in painting and it's been going particularly well this year would you say that more yeah it's this year, I don't know, with the lockdown and everything. I don't know. I don't know how to describe it. It just things started happening. And I think because I had that time during lockdown to just produce a lot of work and like focus on it, things have started to, to work out. And of course, there was the, yeah, doing the show as well. So um, I applied to go on Portrait Artists of the Year, which is on Sky Arts. And I've always watched that show and like loved it and been like really envious of the contestants because I never thought 
I don't know, it was just one of those things that you want to do that, but you can't really picture it happening. And every year I'd be like, okay, I'll apply next year because I'm not ready, you know, in my mind. This year, like, my, my boyfriend just, he was like, just apply, like, just do it, just do it. So I did, and I got on. Amazing. Yeah, I remember getting the phone call and I was just really speechless and my boyfriend was there and he was like, sound more excited, like sound more enthusiastic, but I was just, I'd gone really blank and I was just... (laughs) That's hilarious. Were they just like, oh, she obviously doesn't really care that much. (laughs) They were like, we're bringing you this amazing news. I don't know. And I was there to the end. I was like, by the way, I am... I'm really excited about this. I just feel a bit overwhelmed. <laughs> they were like, we're bringing you this incredible news. You've got onto this massive like, yeah, show. Nice. And you're just like, okay, cool. They, as in the crew doing the show, like the people who organise it and talk to you and sort it all out are like, they're so amazing. Like they really understand. I think they just understand what people are like. Because if you feel like you can't talk, like they know they kind of get that. Yeah, they're just really understanding. And they really emphasise the fact that it's like a painting show, it's not a personality show. Like, they're like, if you're if you're shy, don't worry about it. Like, some people are quite shy. Like, most people have never painted, like, on TV before. And, like, that's a really weird concept, you know, to try and focus and have that creative, um, yeah, ability under that kind of pressure it's just really really not normal and they they just really understand that and they're really cool about it they make it as easy as possible basically for you brilliant that sounds great it sounds like they're so lovely and welcoming so we'll go back to that a little bit more in a minute but i just want to ask you why do you paint um this is like a really hard question and it just is like i think about it all the time i'm like why why do i do this then it starts to get a bit weird because like you know when you think about something too much and like the concept of it starts to get really questionable and you're like it's just it's just something that I feel like I want to do and I've always wanted to do it it just makes me feel kind of free not to be a cliche but that's sort of what it does do you do you remember the first time you painted the first time I painted when I was really little I remember drawing people yeah I just was always interested in drawing faces and like and people walking as well and then I was really encouraged to kind of continue it by my dad and my and my mum as well was really supportive. I I can't remember the first painting that I did, but sometimes I find them at home that my mum's kept and I'm like, oh my god, I did this, it's not bad. Oh, that's so cute. So I like how you describe um, how your art is sort of explaining or describing something that's indescribable, perhaps. Mm. What do you think your biggest challenge with being an artist at the moment is? What's your biggest challenge that you face? Yeah, probably the most challenging thing is the kind of scrutiny that your work goes under. You can't help it that your work is going to be put to kind of social and it's going to be put into context by the kind of current environment and your work, because it was produced today in that time, even if you don't feel like it should be put in that kind of context, like it kind of is, because that's when it's happened. I love that you've said that the biggest challenge with being an artist is the kind of scrutiny and the critique that you that your art will just naturally be succumbed to. Um, How does that fit with Portrait of Art of the Year? Because obviously that's all about being judged for your work. Like you said, it was a very welcoming environment, but how did you sort of manage the sort of being under critique in that environment? I don't know. I think it's a different different kind of thing, because first, being on that show, like, it's so warm and it feels really safe. If anything, the criticism that... It's not that I'm, like 
opposed to criticism because I, I find it, it it's helpful and it's useful but um yeah on the show the criticism is kind of like you want to hear it because they kind of really know what they're talking about from a few different perspectives like and so they they come to this really fair conclusion so I, it's like it's really um diplomatic and i like that about it <laughs> i just came away from it feeling so uplifted because i've met so many like genuinely nice people yeah i don't know people seem to genuinely genuinely care about like how you're feeling like i wasn't feeling so well on the second on the semi-final because the nerves really really got to me in a way that i didn't even know was possible by the way wow really yeah i couldn't eat like anything I think I was like knackered from all the adrenaline from doing the heat and I just had this really strange feeling. I also like emotionally it had been really, really intense because in the first round I started my painting again halfway through because um, the likeness wasn't there and it was really important for it to look. I was like, there's no point in carrying on this painting if it's not going to be him. So I really need to start it again. And then I was panic painting and I was like painting in fast forward and I was using all this energy that like I just didn't have and I was getting so tired, but I couldn't give up because I was like, you can't give up. I was really trying to get this painting done, even though I knew it wasn't quite working. Like in my mind, the painting really wasn't working. So I then kind of prepared myself. Okay, it didn't happen this time, but like you're gonna come back next year and like try again and that kind of stuff. And so when I actually did like go through, I was so genuinely shocked because I had like told myself that my painting was like a total failure, and that was like a really extreme moment emotionally, and it 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 kind of like killed me a bit. I don't know. I I felt I went into such a strange like frame of mind. I felt really weird and distant and just kind of like shell shocked. And I was also mm-hmm. just like really really nervous, but I didn't recognize it as nerves because I'd never felt like that before. Yeah. Wow. So I was just like, am I like dying? Am I ill? <laughs> like, what is this? <laughs> oh God. <laughs> yeah. It's kind of like the blind panic from the first time. <laughs> then transferred into sort of kind of bodily trauma where you're just like so scared of being like panicked again and that having that much of an extreme reaction emotionally and probably chemically right in your body it felt like really really physical yeah so i was just like yeah, i don't know yeah. if i can experience that again would you do it again yeah i want to do it again next year <laughs> amazing <laughs> that's so brilliant so you're going to continue painting and obviously things are sort of soaring for you at the moment what's the dream where where are you going to take it what the dream i guess is just to paint and to be able to paint for a living um and it's kind of nearly it's kind of nearly like getting to that place in a way but obviously you know like this thing isn't reliable like it kind of goes up and down so at the moment it's kind of going on like i've got some portrait commissions booked in for a few months so now i'm just working as like a basically like a portrait artist and that's really amazing like that's that that is like the goal basically brilliant yeah how how would you advise budding artists then people who kind of maybe maybe listening who have dabbled or are artistic or do even make work but um, haven't quite made that jump to um, making work full-time or what would you advise for them it really is important to just just focus on like the thing that you want to do which is whatever artistic thing you're pursuing you know even if you're having to work like 40 45 hour weeks which is what i was doing like sometimes 50 hour weeks like at the restaurant you know waitressing and then still finding the time to go to your studio and paint and enter competitions and 
submit your work to like galleries and stuff it is like it is a lot of work and it does take you know dedication and money like you've got to invest in that thing but the thing is like if you really want to do it then you're not really going to be happy doing anything else so it's worth it that's great that's great. Okay, final one then. I don't know if you know, but on Billy Elliot's Adventure Club, we ask the guests to set a, cha- a challenge for the audience. Now, people who are listening, they've probably been really inspired by yeah, this interview and what you've had to say. So have you got a challenge for them, Morag? Um, yeah, I, maybe everyone should, if they want to, try and do a self-portrait. Um, just doesn't have to be a masterpiece, just something that you can connect with and like see as it being yourself um maybe in the mirror or maybe from a photo um yeah like nothing fancy maybe just with a bit of charcoal on some paper just like free and expressive and see if you can kind of get yourself great love it thank you morag what a brilliant challenge it's been so absolutely brilliant to chat to you oh thanks Billy. yeah it's been lovely good luck with your painting good luck with everything oh thank you yeah you too thanks to morag caster there and if you'd like to check out her beautiful work you can go to her website which is morag caster that's c-a-i-s-t-e-r dot com feeling inspired Have you been making art in recent times? If you'd like to share your work to us, send it via our Instagram page, which is Billy Elliot's Adventure Club. That's B-I-L-L-I-E, Elliot's with one L and one T, Adventure Club. And if we like it, we'll share it on our story. I'd love to see what you've all been up to. But before we do, I have a special treat in store as we dive into the exciting world of Frankie Dewar, a freelance writer and outdoor enthusiast who says she's more likely to be found in the mountains than in any office. Today, we talk about her solo cycling trip around the parameter of the UK last summer. Here's Frankie. Radio Reverb. Fine. So, I'm really excited to be introducing Frankie Jewer on Billy Elliot's Adventure Club. Hi, Frankie. How are you doing today? Hi. I'm really good, thank you. I'm very excited to be joining you. Yeah. Frankie got in touch um, with a really exciting little adventure story. Do you want to start by introducing the story and telling everyone about it a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. So, back in lockdown number one, I bought a cheap secondhand bike. It was £75. And I can sort of remember picking this bike up and being like so nervous about riding it the 200 metres from the bike shop to the car park. And like I couldn't indicate, couldn't take my hand off the handlebars. But like slowly over lockdown, we did kind of like a little trip every weekend and then like a slightly longer day and a slightly longer day, just exploring the area around us. And then just as lockdown started to lift, I had this idea for a big trip where I cycled sort of around the UK or maybe a zigzag of the UK. And when lockdown lifted, I sort of said to my partner, I was like, do you know what? this trip that I've got in my head I think I need to do it right now great so with very little experience and a secondhand bike I set up a plan and completed a cycle loop of the UK so I ended up cycling 3,175 kilometers wow that's a lot of miles 
It is, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I break it down. So I did it, started off really, really slow, didn't do very many kilometers each day. The whole trip took me two months to do, um, or two and a bit months to do. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I did it really, really slowly, but yeah, I still managed yeah. to get the whole way around. I mean, I really admire this story because I actually really relate to it because I've also done the same thing of getting up your bike and just going for it and do, doing a tour on my own. But I've never set the challenge of going around the whole of the UK and that's that's a long that's a long way. Why did you decide to do this? Yeah, really good question. So I had wanted to cycle tour for quite a while and I wanted to do it as part of a bigger project where I spoke to people but I didn't really know who I wanted to speak to. And then there was one day in lockdown and I live quite like an adventurous and alternative lifestyle and I really prioritise you know, the things that I love doing that bring me joy, whether it's running or hiking or climbing or just getting outside. Mm-hmm. But I don't see myself doing those things forever. And sometimes I think it's because I don't see people that I can resonate with. So I don't see, for me particularly, I don't see women who are older than me doing those things. And so I don't really know sort of like who to look up to. Mm. And I just had this thought that if I feel this way, maybe other people do too. And I was really uncertain about it, but eventually I popped a post on Facebook and sort of said, if anybody, if I could talk to anybody, if anyone knows anyone, if this resonates, just let me know. And I was so scared, I like had to shut the laptop and walk away. <laughs> and I told myself that if I, get six answers, I'll just go visit those six people. That'll be my tour, it'll be amazing. Nice. And when I came back a few hours later, I had like over 150 comments. Wow. And they just kept coming and kept coming. There were so many people that were either saying like, yes, I feel this too, or I'm in my 40s, I'd love to speak to you. I'm 27 and I opened it up to anyone older than me. So I had people in their 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, even in their 70s sort of saying like, oh no, I'm still getting out in the hills. Like, Mm. we're still here. Um, And so then I tried to plan a route that I could fit in in the time and just see as many different people as far across the country as I could. Mm -hmm. And that's how what seems like a very random route sort of came into being and started to make sense. So I ended up interviewing 51 people. And so I spoke to women and non-binary folk who were older than myself. And I sort of said, anyone who prioritizes the outdoors as part of their life. Yeah. And that meant that I spoke to people who, for them, maybe it's just getting outside in their local park. You know, I spoke to one woman who lives in this tiny nature reserve. And so for her, she spends her days like getting out in the nature reserve and exploring there. Right through to skiers and cyclists. I spoke to a woman who started mountaineering in her 40s wild swimmers just a huge range brilliant so you interview these 51 people what did it mean to you to connect so many people on your ride oh it was amazing that's such a good question it's something I've not been asked before but do you know I think it was just amazing to know that there are so many women out there and there are so many different ways of being you know all these different women have had different journeys through life and they're all getting out in whatever way it means to them. Some of them might have full-time jobs, some of them might have part-time jobs, some of them might have made their adventures their work. Mm -hmm. There's 
like no one way that you have to be in order to access this community it really is open for everyone and I spoke to women of all different backgrounds and it was just amazing to see so many people out there and doing it and showing that there are so many different ways to do it yeah absolutely I guess it must have been quite inspiring then Oh yeah, completely. Do you know, everybody I spoke to, I sort of asked them what they did and almost everyone I spoke to, I thought, oh, maybe I should do that. Maybe I should have a career change. I think I've now got 51 different careers that I'd like to do. Brilliant, I bet. (laughs) Yeah, I love that so much. So you connected with all these people and you got really inspired by, you know, interviewing 51 different people. I mean, when you were actually riding, how did you feel when you were cycling? Most of the time, I felt amazing. I'm not going to lie to you. People were messaging me, telling me how I was doing it and wasn't it so hard and so difficult what I was doing. I didn't feel like it was difficult at all. I felt like I was on the most amazing holiday ever. Mm -hmm. I would ride all day, eat great food, and then go and meet someone, listen to their inspiring life, ask them all the deepest questions that, you know, I've been burning to ask someone... And then I'd probably have them cook me dinner and I'd camp in their garden. Great. (laughs) What's not to love? And I guess that paints quite a rosy picture of it. That was a lot of days and that's the memory I have of it. I think there was also a lot of terrible weather and a lot of days where I just sort of had to tell myself it was just a day and just to get through it. You know, I cycled through, there were two big storms last uh, August and September. I cycled through both of them. It rained solidly for the first 17 days of the trip. Wow. And then towards the end of the trip, there was another two-week block where Mm. I only had two pairs of socks left. (laughs) One wet pair and one dry pair. And I'd put the dry pair on every night. And then I'd get up in the morning and I'd put the wet pair oh, back God. on. And... It's almost like you need to do, you need to do three, three pairs of socks, I think, with those sort of cycles. <laughs> You've always got one. Maybe I should have invested. But to be fair, by the time I was cycling, because it was raining so much, my socks would have got wet yeah. anyway. But it was just that initial putting wet socks on. That yeah, was like, oh. that's not very inviting. <laughs> no. But I know exactly what you mean about this amazing, very simple life that you pursue when you're cycling. You know, you're really physically challenged and physically almost like fulfilled. And then you're nourishing your body and you often eat a lot more than you normally would. And it feels really great. And then this added aspect of like connecting with somebody as well. It just sounds like you've kind of got a bit of everything in there in order to make it an absolutely perfect adventure. Yeah, definitely. And there were moments when I was cycling and I was like, wow, this is what my body is designed to do. My body is designed to move. It's not designed to sort of sit in front of a laptop all day, every day. Mm -hmm. It's designed to be out there moving Mm. and just spending time outside. Absolutely. So you kind of explained and talked a little bit about the rain and the wet socks, but out of the, the whole adventure, thinking about it now, what do you think the most challenging aspect of it was for you? I think starting was really hard. I was sort of really anxious before I started that maybe I'd dreamed up this really cool trip, but that maybe I wasn't like capable of doing it. You know, I'd never interviewed anyone before, so maybe all these people would give me their time, but I wouldn't be able to, you know, give them the energy, give them the questions, give them what they needed. Maybe I wouldn't be able to cycle it at all. Like I'd never even done an overnight cycling trip, so I had no idea if physically 
I actually would be able to. Mm. So starting was really hard. And then I remember just telling myself that if I can get through day one, I'll get through anything. Which, it seemed like a great idea at the time. But then day one came and it was chucking it down with rain. Mm. Because I'd never used my nav device before, I set it up wrong and I got completely lost and I went completely the wrong way on really unsuitable trails on the downs. Yeah. And then, because I'd not really tested any of my gear, a bit of my bike broke. And you know, it was like six o'clock in the evening on a Saturday. So there was like no way that we could get a new part or fix it. So I ended up having to give up and stop cycling 20 kilometers into my first 60 kilometers on my first day and it just felt like you know like the biggest failure and because I've been telling myself if you can get through day one you can get through anything I wasn't prepared for what happens if I don't get through day one yeah (laughs) and that was really really tough to come back from I was really lucky that that night I was staying at a friend's house who has a shed full of bikes and her dad has spare parts from every bike and everything he's ever owned labeled in drawers and they had a spare part and that spare part is still on my bike now (laughs) wow that's amazing such an organized and useful person (laughs) i know literally my savior and bless her she made a vegan curry and had a jacket potato in the oven for my soggy wet miserable snotty arrival (laughs) i think i think the beginning is probably the hardest thing and i think starting a big adventure or any adventure no matter what what how small is normally the most daunting part isn't it and the the most challenging yeah i think it is and i think what i would say and what i've learned from it is that like you're never gonna feel ready so you do need to start maybe before everything's ready and that that's Mm -hmm. not a bad thing and it's not a bad thing if things go wrong from that like you're never going to anticipate everything that can go wrong so instead of trying to anticipate everything that could probably ever go wrong maybe it's good just to have a plan b that's like your backup for whatever happens yeah yeah you learn so much you know as you go don't you i mean what apart from this experience what what did you learn on your on your bike ride Ah, I mean, I learnt a lot about myself in the bike ride and then I learnt so much as well from the incredible women that I interviewed. So I think from the bike ride itself, I learnt that sometimes some things aren't as hard as other people make them seem. Mm. I don't want to shout out anyone in particular, but there are potentially some people, especially in the outdoors, especially doing adventurous challenges, who sort of maybe big themselves up and make it seem like what they did is the most dangerous, most extreme, most difficult, you know, you had to get through so much. When actually, a lot of people could do what I did. You know, I started with very basic fitness on a very affordable bike. I was really lucky to have the time off work. I think that's the biggest thing that I had that I don't know that a lot of people would get. But Mm -hmm. you don't need an awful lot in order to go cycle touring and in order to make cycle touring available to you if that makes sense yeah absolutely I totally agree I mean I did the exact same thing I I went off and cycled around Wales um, for my first tour 
and I had a really bad bike and I ended up basically my bike completely collapsed in the most remote part of Wales ever. Oh no. <laughs> and it was like completely unrideable, honestly, really not. And I was just like, I don't know what I'm going to do. And in the end, I just waited. And this, I can't believe it, but this um, camper van, sort of VW camper van surfer kind of group of Jehovah's Witnesses just turned up um, and were like, you're right. And, I was like, and they just had all the things and they, they took me, they took me in my bike in the van and drove me really, really far to the closest like bike maintenance place and helped as much as they could. And honestly, like, I don't even know why they were in that very re- remote part because it wasn't even anywhere near any surf. Um, but it was a bit like kind of like putting that trust in your adventure and trust in the process of it all, I guess, is actually really a, quite a key part of it. And I, I, like, I like what you said there about some things are actually not as unobtainable or as difficult as they might seem initially. So, OK, so there'll be listeners who've heard this and have probably felt quite inspired. Um, would you give them any particular tips if they were interested in doing the same or doing a similar thing? Um definitely just go for it I mean I'm sure that's what everybody says but you kind of do just have to get started in order to go um I would say that if they've never cycled at all before there are some really good sort of community projects and cycle groups there's like the breeze network that's all over the country and linking up with them you don't necessarily need to go to the groups but they'll be people who could help give them advice about what bike to get or what bike they might need and then just get a bike and start playing locally to them and then I think just like if you're already getting outdoors or doing some things just use the gear that you have I feel like a lot of people want to try and tell you that you need all the gear for exactly what you're doing but you really don't like if you're only gonna cycle from you know maybe do a weekend trip stay in a b&b and cycle back again then you don't really need panniers and a whole load of camping gear you just need a backpack and a change of clothes and you know using the backpack that you've already got is going to be way better than waiting a year until you buy panniers or putting it off you've interviewed 51 people for your podcast um extraordinary ordinary women yeah And that's women with an X in it. Just for those who don't know what that means, could you explain a little bit about why there's an X in the word woman? Yeah, absolutely. So I use the word women with an X just to make it a little bit more of an inclusive term. I'm really aware that doing something particularly gendered can shut a lot of people that maybe don't resonate with that gender. It can shut them out of the conversation. And I wanted to keep it really open. And within the trip, I interviewed both women and non-binary folk. So I wanted to use a term that was a little bit more inclusive of that population and that resonated a bit more with them. Great. And where can listeners find your podcast? You can find it on extraordinaryordinarywomen.co and through all the usual podcast sites, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify. Yeah, all the usual places. Grand. Amazing. Frankie, it's so been so exciting and fun to talk to you and it's been very inspiring for me as well. It's making me want to get back on my bike. Um, at the end of the interviews we have on Billy Elliot's Adventure Club, we ask the guests to set the audience a challenge. Have you got a challenge for the audience, Frankie? I do indeed. You know, one of my favourite things of the trip that I really didn't expect would happen was that all over the country, people would actually come and cycle a little bit 
with me and a lot of the people that cycled with me were people that had either cycled in the past and not cycled for ages people that had never cycled people that wanted to but needed that extra push and so it was really amazing to see people getting out and riding and enjoying what I was enjoying too so my challenge would be to get out on a bike and I know that not everybody's got a bike but there are loads of different ways that you can do it you know if you're in a city and there's like one of those bike hire scheme things you can do that pop into a local bike shop see if they've got a bike to hire or find a second-hand bike or even put it out on Facebook marketplace see if anyone's got a bike that they're not using that needs a little bit of love that's exciting Frankie it's been so brilliant to chat to you um I hope you have a lovely weekend It's been amazing. Thank you so much. And I hope that we'll get to cycle together soon. Yeah. All right, then. Have a great one. Thank you. Bye, bye, bye. Bye. Radio Reverb. Fine. Radio Reverb. Now there's just a little bit of time left over to listen to something soothing. As some of you might know, I'm also an audio producer and artist off-air, and I decided to spend some time on a project close to my heart. This was an opportunity to bring the local community together and create collaborative sound experiences under themes that we can all relate to. So I started this project by working with fantastic local musician Gabrielle Belf, who worked tirelessly to create a beautiful backdrop to some words, reflections and poetry from those living in and around Brighton on the subject of loneliness. Here is an excerpt of this work. Don't surrender your loneliness so quickly. Let it cut more deep. Let it ferment and season you as few human or even divine ingredients can. Something missing in my heart tonight has made my eyes so soft my voice so tender, my need of God absolutely clear. So one of my favourite writers whose name I cannot pronounce, it's like Michel de Monton, and he writes a lot about solitude. And when I uh, went and did my big hike, I took one of his books with me on solitude, and there was a, a, a great quote in it that was, um, there is nothing to fear but fear itself. Having fairly recently become single, I have felt the fear of loneliness rather than loneliness itself. I spent a lot of time worrying that I'm going to be lonely instead of actually enjoying my my solitude, which is the positive side. Um, It's like the chance to relax and reflect and grow and learn new things but I think when you're when you're in the zone of panicking about being lonely you're not really embracing that opportunity and for me solitude when I did the hike was what I was craving I thought yeah I'm gonna hike for five months so that I can really embrace solitude and be alone and certainly like those first few weeks of my hike I was kind of worrying about 
am I lonely? Am I lonely? Checking in with myself all the time. We need to take time out and embrace the benefits of solitude, people. Just had a dinner for one. I ordered all of the delicious stuff, spent loads of money on myself. That was great. Massive bath. I've literally just had like a lobster meal. And I'm about to get in the bath with a left. I've had a few beers. Good night. Letter written in icing sugar by Tom Besley. Backhand scrawls on candy paper to friends anywhere. One month now. Little happenings, little changes. I've been plucking pipe strings, churning up, right down, baking to perfection that cherry-scented almond bread you gave me. Promising such tender condolences that I really believed having my cake, beating baby eggs, stiff upper face, buttered tension, together might make something wonderful. So I send back letters written in icing sugar. Sweet, Merciful words, drowning pain, oh chocolat, in lashings, or caramel biscuit truffle tufts that don't make grow but shrink like an overcooked weed back into the electric ground. Hoping to find you all a perpetual friend present, waiting. You fold the page. As misty eyes salivate, the left edge speaks out. Things are hard for me here, and I write this alone. But I'm coping. I think the worst type of loneliness is when I'm not alone. when there's people around people I could possibly connect with and yet for whatever reason I feel completely isolated loneliness within the word lonely lies myself one O-N-E Maybe it is possible for me to move from the ache and moan, the oh of loneliness, and return to what is really within the word. O-N-E, one. Togetherness with myself. A place where one is company. Not everyone has to like everything. And I was just thinking about how you get those bouts of loneliness because you try to connect with someone and if it's not returned, it makes you feel lonely. But it might have nothing to do with you. Maybe that we've all got someone we can connect to, but we're just not always with them. Maybe that's loneliness. Does that sound wanky? Sounds pretty wanky, doesn't it? 
Tinderfly by Matt Alton. Today I felt the beat of a hoverfly's wings as it inspected my busy thumbs. A quick refocus of my task and I learned they hover to attract a mate, wings beating 120 times per second. From an arm's length, you could never tell her courtship is so arduous. From a torso's breadth, you would never know mine is. I feel loneliness may be an important emotion that we do need to feel. But to feel loneliness, then, then we really understand the feeling of being wanted or desired or loved, or the feeling of being important. As I say, being seen by somebody, I think um, if any of us have experienced loneliness, then we know the importance of being seen by other human beings. Yeah, I think seeing people is the opposite of loneliness. I see you and I love you. Ignition sequence start. Six, five, four, three, two, one, zero. All engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. City Imprints by Annie Elliott City Energy Imprinted Runs so deep it activates on the presence of your footsteps return Cement gardens left untouched without footprint just cigarette burn The charge flows whirring past patterns into negative speech and actions It wriggles through and around my throat Scented bees buzzing down and around the gut and chest. Their sting singeing a path. Mouths full and swelling, unable to swallow the words. Spluttering with a choke of fumbled spaghetti hoop letters. Your tongue licks them into structures. They fall out without control. Whilst grassy landscapes applaud your return. A mossy squelch awaits to absorb the inner curve of your foot. Hello, it's 3.01 and I'm alone in bed. And I'm going to send you a little something about loneliness. Um, I see loneliness in two different ways. I think I see it as obviously a scary thing that is dark and has a lot of fear in it um, and then I see it as this positive thing where lots of growth comes with it and I guess I equate it to solitude and a to become better at self-soothing and listen.
listening to myself and being with myself and not distracting myself from feelings that I need to feel and learn to overcome or learn to take in and understand. Yeah, that's what I've got with loneliness. Um, it's hard in the moment, but it will be fruitful. You do not have to walk on your knees for a hundred miles through the desert, repenting. You only have to let the soft animal of your body love what it loves. Tell me about despair, yours, and I'll tell you mine. Meanwhile, the world goes on. Meanwhile, the sun and the clear pebbles of rain are moving across the landscape, over the prairies and the deep trees, the mountains and the rivers. Meanwhile, the wild geese, high in the clear blue air, are heading home again. Whoever you are, no matter how lonely, the world offers itself to your imagination, calls to you like wild geese, harsh and exciting, over and over, announcing your place in the family of things. This podcast was produced by Billy Elliot Turner and Gabrielle Balf. Contributors included Pip Beckett Robertson, Tom Besley, Tamsin Cornish, Maddie Broad, Alison Cowling, Matt Olton, Emily Klein, Annie Elliot, Orla Keenan, and Kit Jones. Director and producer was Billy Elliot Turner. Music designer, producer, and director was Gabrielle Balf. If you'd like to hear the full piece on loneliness, you can by searching You Are Not Alone, Billy Elliot Sound on Spotify. Right, that's all we have time for today. Don't forget our challenges to get on a bike or try self-portrait. I most certainly will be giving my face a good go with a bit of charcoal. If you'd like to share any self-portraits you attempt or master, share them with our Instagram page, Billy Elliot Adventure Club. That's Billy, B-I-L-L-I-E, Elliot's with one L and one T, Adventure Club. Good luck all and what I hope will be the final lockdown for us all. Catch you in February for more micro-adventures, stories and frivolity. We are the champions, my friend.